And as we move into our Easter series, Easter reasons to hope. And as we focus our attention over the next five weeks on 1 Corinthians 15, we focus on the resurrection. And part and parcel of the resurrection is that not only the effect of the resurrection is the defeat of sin and the defeat of death, and as wonderful and powerful as those gifts are, there's so much more that the resurrection underpins. And one of the things the resurrection underpins is the kingdom of God. And I'm talking in terms of not just the fact that we belong to God's kingdom now, but that time coming when Christ will reign over the earth. The resurrection underpins it all. It's grounded on the resurrection of Jesus. And this resurrection, which calls us into this kingdom life, calls us to a new way of living. This is an exciting topic, and it's so broad, and it affects so many areas. We're going to touch on some of those this morning, just in the briefest of ways. But over the course of the next five weeks, we will see the way in which the resurrection touches so many areas of our life. But excitingly, the life that Christ has called you into now, to serve him and to live for him, and to demonstrate that resurrection life to the world. Let's pray and then let's come to God's word. Father, we've sung some wonderful songs this morning that call us to celebrate the resurrection of your son. We rightly thank you and praise you for his death, for his sacrifice for sin. But as the Apostle Paul says, it would be all in vain if your son had not been raised from the dead. I pray this morning, Lord, that you would encourage us to step further into the resurrection life of Jesus. In his mighty name we pray. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Hasn't it been an interesting week or two in politics in Australia? Now, don't worry, you're not going to get a political discourse this morning, all right? There's enough of that. But what an interesting couple of weeks in politics and all of the allegations that have been made and there have been denials and there have been suggestions that people are lying and it's going backwards and forwards and we're bombarded with viewpoints about who said what and who did what and all of the mess that it goes with. And what you notice through these kinds of discourses that go on in our society is the media largely controls it, don't they? They pretty much control the narrative and the story that they want to tell. And I am not in any way saying to you this morning that we should be covering up stuff. I think that we need to, when things are raised, they need to be brought out into the light and exposed and to, to do our very best to seek the truth. But if you're like me, it's pretty difficult to find out the truth, isn't it, about situations. We do get a very biased view. And a lot of us make up our own minds. We, we hear something and we think, well, that sounds right. And yep, that's, that's exactly what happened. I want to push you a little bit further this morning. How many of you, over the last couple of weeks, as you've been following the various stories going on in Canberra, how many of you have actually asked the question, I wonder if there's another side to this? Because there is. There is another side to this. And that doesn't excuse anybody. That doesn't in any way say that uh, what has been going on is incorrect, but there is another side. And the only way you're ever going to get to the truth or the bottom of a matter is to look at both sides. The Bible tells us that over and over again. I, I, I am staggered, and I mean, I'm, I'm, I've been guilty of it, and I still fall into the trap from time to time, but I'm staggered how regularly we as people just accept at, first, uh, at face value 
the first story that is often put to us. And yet Proverbs says what? The first to present his case always seems right until another comes and cross-examines him. Ah, maybe that's not such a bad idea. Maybe there is a second side of the story and maybe we ought to listen to it. I mean, as I read the scriptures, I'm glad. Aren't you glad that Solomon, when he had two women come to him arguing over baby, aren't you glad that Solomon asked for another viewpoint on that or showed some wisdom? It could have, been, it could have led to the death of a child. But Solomon, with great wisdom, did not just simply accept the first story that was presented to him about that little child. Over and over and over, we see it. Now, more interestingly, okay, the media is one thing, politics is one thing, and Solomon's situation he was confronted with, that's another thing. But more importantly, on matters of faith, many, many people only listen to one viewpoint or no viewpoint at all and conclude that you cannot discover the truth. I'll tell you what I mean. People will say, okay, you Christians say that Jesus is the only way. That's your viewpoint. But then you've got the Buddhists who say that there's another way to actually find God. Or then you listen to the Muslims and they would say that there is another way to find God. Or if you listen to uh, Hindus, they would say that there is another way to God. And so at the end of the day, people look at that and they say to themselves, it's impossible to discover the truth. So what I will do is I'll just determine my own truth. You heard that? Yeah, happens all the time. And it's a pretty weak way of deciding matters of truth. It's a pretty weak way of actually coming to a conclusion about faith. And it's along the lines, and, you, and, and they go further and say, look, well, even amongst you Christians, you've got disagreements, and you uh, don't agree on this, and you don't agree on that, and so we're just terribly confused. By the way, anybody throws that argument out, up at you, have a think about this. Do you know that there is more that unites Christians of all stripes... Hear what I said? Doesn't matter whether you're Baptist, Church of England, uh, Methodist, whatever. There is more that unites us right across the spectrum of Christianity than what divides us. So this business that people want to come and throw up at you and say, oh, Christians are all divided. Actually, it's not true. On the fundamental essential facts of the gospel and how to get to God, Christians are united. Think about that. But that's an aside. Because people look at matters of faith and they say, well, okay, who's true? The Christians, the Buddhists, the the Muslims, the Hindus, the Jews. Who is telling the truth? It's all too confusing and besides, God will accept me anyway. If what you say about God is true about him loving us, well, he's going to accept us anyway. Now, people do that with faith. And I think it's a really weak approach. Because, folks, we're dealing with matters of life and death, aren't we? Don't you think that's a weak approach? A weak approach that says, well, yeah, there's a God and he'll accept me. Don't you think you should at least look into who this God is that you're talking about? Well, that's why when we come to 1 Corinthians 15, if you want to decide matters of truth, and the question comes up now is, can we actually have the hope of knowing the truth? 1 Corinthians 15 is a deal breaker. When it comes to matters of faith, when it comes to trying to sort out all this business of how we find ourselves to God, 1 Corinthians 15 is the deal breaker. And do you know what the deal breaker is? The resurrection of Jesus. If the resurrection of Jesus is true, that has massive implications for everybody sitting here and everybody who walks the planet. It has massive implications for the people you work with, for the people you go to school with, for your parents, for your family, people that you interact with. If the resurrection is true, if Jesus really physically, bodily rose from the dead, it has huge implications. 
And we're going to look at those implications over the next few weeks. So when it comes to matters of truth, there is a way of deciding, and the resurrection of Jesus is the deal-breaker. Now, why did Paul write 1 Corinthians 15? We're going to get into the first point in a moment, but why did Paul write 1 Corinthians 15? Have a look at verse 12. Here is the reason behind chapter 15. In verse 12, having, as we had read to us, the gospel explained to them again, This is what Paul says. Now, if Christ is preached that he's been raised from the dead, in other words, the message is Christ rose from the dead. If that's what we're saying, then how is it that some of you at Corinth are saying there is no resurrection of the dead? He's talking about a teaching in Corinth that was saying that those Christians who have died will not be raised from the dead. Paul is saying, if that is true then the resurrection of Jesus cannot be true. The question is, or the statement is, that Paul is addressing, that people are saying that Christians will not be raised from the dead. Paul is saying, why are you saying that? If we're preaching that Christ rose from the dead, why are you suggesting that the dead will not be raised? So look at 1 Corinthians 15 in this way. I encourage you to read it. Verses 1 to 11 is the introduction to his sermon, if you like. This is a sermon. Verses 1 to 11 is the introduction. When you get to verse 12 down to verse 57, that's the content or the doctrinal part of the sermon. And you get to verse 58, the last verse in the chapter, and you know what that is? It's the application. One verse is left to application, but what an application, and we'll see that in a few weeks' time. So let's jump in, shall we, to 1 Corinthians 15. Paul begins his sermon by saying it all happened according to the Scriptures. Did you notice that phrase that came up over and over again? It all happened according to the scriptures. Let's talk for a few minutes about gospel and tradition. Look at verse 1. I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you. The word is euangelion. It was a Greek word that meant good news. Our word gospel comes from two old English words, God meaning good and spell meaning story. So put it together, it was God's spell, or became gospel, good story. So gospel, those two old English words, is a great translation of the Greek word, which means good news. And euangelion, the Greek word, gives us our word evangelism. So when we talk about evangelism, we're talking about sharing the good news. Now in the ancient world of the Greeks, this euangelion, or this good news, was often used in the context of a soldier who was running back to the city to declare the victory of the Greeks over the enemy. So the Greeks have been in a battle, they've won the battle, they would dispatch a soldier back to the city to say, here is the good news, we have won, we've defeated our enemies. And so the emphasis was on celebration. The runner would come in, the soldier would come in, he would be welcomed by the populace, he would de- deliver the good news, they would grab a crown of, or a wreath and put it on his head, they would grab his spear and decorate it with a laurel, and then they'd all go off and have a massive party. We've won, we've won! And so the emphasis of good news was celebration. But by the time Paul gets a hold of the word, there was less focus on celebration and more on content, and this is what Paul wants us to understand. When he talks about the gospel, yes, there's a celebratory aspect to it, but he wants us to understand the content, the message. What is the content? Let me put it to you this way. Imagine you're in the first century and a guy like Paul comes to you and he says, I've got great news. Jesus has defeated sin and death. 
And everybody goes, woohoo, let's have a party, let's celebrate. Wouldn't you want to know the content, the actual fuller meaning behind that? It's not enough. You'd be saying, hang on a minute, how can I celebrate if I don't understand how Jesus has conquered sin and death? I mean, it sounds great, but how? Of course you would ask that question, and this is what Paul wants to remind them of. He said, when we came to you with the gospel, we had a very specific message. And that message involves the following. We're going to look at it. But it's another word. I I want to draw your attention to the word tradition. Look at verse 3. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That word received is an important word. It's a word that can be translated as tradition. It's the idea of handing something on to someone else. And Paul is now getting into the nitty-gritty of the content here. Why is this so important? Because Paul wants the Corinthians to understand that the message that he received and he passed on to them, this tradition, was oral tradition. Remember, most of the New Testament is not written at this point. And so the early church relied on the oral tradition about Jesus handing it on from one person to another. Paul says, I received that oral tradition. And he's going to explain it in a moment. Now, The reason this is important is because there have been scholars who have said that the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, in fact all the Gospels were written 100 years after the death of Jesus. So Jesus dies around about 30, 33 AD. What they are saying is that 100 years later, these guys put the Gospels together, they put disciples' names on the Gospel to give them credibility and this is what happened. What happened was that they built up this kind of a legend about Jesus and everybody who was alive at the time of Jesus was now dead. So they put in things like the resurrection, they put in things like miracles and it was a legend that grew and because there was no one around to refute that, no one around to say, hey, I was there and Jesus never did that or yes, Jesus did do that, the legend grew. And so people began to believe what we today believe about Jesus, that he's God, that he died for our sin, that he was resurrected. And it all sounds very plausible, but it's rubbish. Because the majority of scholars will tell you that the Gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke, those first three Gospels, were written within less than a generation. That The historical evidence supports that they were written within less than of a generation of the death of Jesus. They've some written somewhere in the 50s and 60s. So that means they're very close. What's, that, what's so important about that? Well, it means that that document was written very shortly in less than a generation from the time of Jesus. There were still people around who could come up to the author of Matthew, who was Matthew, or the author of Mark, uh, who was Mark, and they could say, hang on, Mark, you put that bit in about the resurrection. That never happened. But you see, that didn't happen because what they were writing down was truth. And people were saying, yep, they've got the story right. They've got the facts right. We were there. We saw, we saw that miracle. We saw the feeding of the 5,000. I was there when it happened. I saw Jesus. But oral tradition is actually even a bit stronger. Because you see, when we push back to oral tradition, you've got oral tradition all the way through the New Testament. You've got summaries of Peter's sermons. You've got summaries of Paul's sermons. You've got ancient hymns that were sung by the church. You've got creeds that exist in the New Testament. It's all been put together. It's all been written down. So at some point, people took this oral tradition, these beliefs and these statements about Jesus, and they wrote them down. 
How early is it then? How close? Because for a historian, the closer you can get, the more accurate it is, the more likely it is to be reliable. So how reliable is oral tradition? Well, Paul says here, I received this oral tradition about Jesus from the apostles. Most scholars agree that Paul received the oral tradition about Jesus from Peter and the other apostles three years after his conversion. That's after Paul's conversion. Paul was converted two years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. So the oral tradition that Paul receives is five years away, just five years away from when Jesus died. So it's pretty close. How close is it? How, how important is that? Well, let me quote one historian who said this. Listen to this, I love this. This is the sort of evidence historians of the ancient world drool over. They love this stuff because it means it's getting closer and closer. And the more close you get or the closer you get, the more likely you can rely on the accuracy of it. So tradition is not always a bad thing and tradition is not always fat, a fake. The story of Jesus is not like the story of Robin Hood. Robin Hood is a legend. You can go back and you can investigate all the stuff about Robin Hood. There have been speculations about Robin Hood, about whether he existed or not. Uh, the truth would seem that Robin Hood didn't exist and the legend just grew. But you can't do that with Jesus. Because when you apply the same historical principles and the same historical investigation to the life of Jesus, you don't see a legend evolving over a period of time. What you get is further and further you get pushed back to the actual time of the events, closer and closer. So there's a big difference between Robin Hood and Jesus, but I'm sure you already knew that. So let's talk about the content of this gospel, because in the first instance, it concerns the death and burial of Jesus. I want you to notice the phrase. Look what Paul says in verse 3. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried according to the scriptures. In other words, Paul is saying what happened was predicted in the Old Testament scriptures. What was predicted in the Old Testament scriptures concerning his death and burial? Now, we're not going to look at all of these, but let me just, if you want the references, come and see me afterwards, okay? Because I want to just flick through. But this is what the Old Testament tells us about the death and burial of Jesus. In the first instance, we read a prediction of the triumphal entry. In Zechariah 9, verse 9, it is predicted. In Matthew 21, verses 6 to 11, it is fulfilled. We are told in the Old Testament that Jesus, the Messiah, would be betrayed by a friend. Psalm 41, verse 9, uh, the psalmist writes, My close friend, the one who shared my bread, he has lifted up his heel against me. That phrase, my close friend, can be translated, man of peace. My man of peace has betrayed me. How did Judas betray Jesus? with a kiss of peace. Incredible accuracy that you find in the scriptures. The crucifixion is predicted in Psalm... I'm sorry, the suffering of Jesus is predicted in Isaiah 52 to 53. That is fulfilled in Matthew chapter 27. Come and get the references later. I'll give you the, the verse uh, numbers as well. The crucifixion is predicted in Psalm 22 and fulfilled in Matthew 27. Now, what's so important about that psalm? Well, that was written about a 1,000 years before Jesus came. But more importantly, it, talks, it describes very accurately crucifixion. You read Psalm 22 when you go home. And here's the interesting thing. 
Crucifixion was unheard of amongst the Jews at that time in history. In fact, in the Old Testament for the Jews, you never ever would hang a person on a cross or on a stake. That was considered that the person was accursed by God. What would happen is if you were guilty of a capital crime and say you were stoned to death for it, if the Jews really wanted to demonstrate, for example, if you'd been blaspheming God, they wanted to demonstrate that God's curse was on you. After you were dead, they would hang you on a pole, but you could only stay there for a few hours because then the body had to be taken down. That's all that they knew. They knew nothing of crucifixion. Crucifixion was developed by the Persians and then various cultures after that expanded on it. The Romans turned it into an art form. But they did not introduce crucifixion until they conquered Palestine, uh, conquered Judea, hundreds of years later. So when the psalmist writes about crucifixion here, the prophetic element is very, very strong. We see, of course, the crucifixion is fulfilled in Matthew 27. What does it say about the death of Jesus? It tells us that he died for our sins. I want to read this passage to you, Isaiah 53, verse 4. Very specific about the suffering and death of Messiah. What does it say? Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging we are healed. How does Peter describe that in his second letter, in his first letter? This is what he says in chapter 2, verse 24. He says, And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. Again, the reference is to Isaiah. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. What does the scripture say? According to the scriptures, he died for our sins. And what does the scripture tell us about his burial? Again, Isaiah 53 says that he would be buried in the tomb of a rich man. Again, it's fulfilled in the Gospel of Matthew. In chapter 27, I believe the reference is. Yes, chapter 27. See me later on. And then, of course, Paul moves into verse 4. Having talked about the death and burial, he tells us that the resurrection was also predicted. Jot down this reference, Psalm 16, verse 10. Its its, uh, fulfilment is spoken of in Acts chapter 2. Do you remember what Jesus himself said when he was on the earth? Just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days and three nights, so shall the Son of Man be in the belly of the earth three days and three nights. He's talking about the resurrection. Jonah was delivered from the whale. Jesus was delivered from the grave. So let me take you back to the gospel and to tradition. I want you to see this, that Paul is saying that the content of the gospel is important. And look at how important it is spelled out. Look in verse 11. Look what he says. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. But I want to take you back to verse 2 because he talks about the effect of this gospel. Here's what it did. Actually, go back to verse 1. He said, you received it. You, you took the gospel to yourself. That's what it means. You, you took it on board personally. You received it from me. He said, and then you took your stand on the gospel. 
It became, the word means to stand firm. The gospel became the foundation of your faith. Now he makes an interesting statement. He says this gospel saved you in verse 2. We know that. But then look what he says. If you hold fast the word which I preach to you. That hold fast is related to the idea of standing firm. And when you read it, you kind of think, so is Paul saying that we've got to continue to believe? Well, yes, he is. But it's a little more definite. It's not as iffy as it sounds. The way it's constructed when Paul originally wrote it is that basically what he's saying is this is the fact of the matter. This, This is the truth of the matter. You continue to stand firm. The gospel undergirds your faith. You are standing firm on Jesus. But notice what he goes on to say. That is, of course, unless you believed in vain. It was all a lot of rubbish. And now your faith is futile. It's worthless. So Paul is now going to go on and remind them that your faith is not hollow. It's not empty. You can celebrate. And the reason you can celebrate it is because here is what we told you. I've told you, other apostles have told you, here is the creed. And he goes on and begins to talk about this creed. So it brings us to the resurrection appearances because this becomes an important part of what Paul is talking about. Look at verses 5 to 7. Let's just run through it. He was raised and then he appeared to Peter, then to the 12. He appeared to more than 500 at one time most of whom remain until now, but some have died. He appeared to James, the brother of Jesus, then to all of the apostles, and last of all, as it were, to me, Paul, one untimely born. So let's talk about the resurrection appearances. The word appeared occurs four times. I want you to notice that it occurs four times in that short passage of scripture we just read. And here's what I want you to note. The word appeared, those four times, refers to the physical act of seeing. It refers to bodily vision. It is not referring to a dream or a hallucination. The word is not used for that. The word is never used to describe a dream or a hallucination. It talks about physically seeing something with your eyes. That's really important because what Paul is saying is these people physically, with their own eyes, saw Jesus. So I've got a question for you. Have you seen Elvis lately? Have you seen Elvis lately? Are you familiar with that little narrative that's been going on for the last 40 years that people reckon they've seen Elvis after he died? The conspiracy theory that he faked his own death and went into hiding. It's been popularised since his death in 1977. The earliest known alleged sighting of Elvis was at the Memphis International Airport. And then there were a series of alleged sightings that took place in Kalamazoo, Michigan in the late 80s. I, was, I don't want to sound rude, but I thought it always happens in a place that sounds like a name like Kalamazoo, doesn't it? This always happens. It conjures up a certain image in your mind. And then in California, many people believed to have seen Presley at California's Legoland of all places, an amusement park that was uh, opened in 1999. And it was shortly after the opening, all these people in California saying, we saw Elvis. You know what happened? It turned out that it was revealed that Elvis impersonators had been hired as an attraction to commemorate the famous singer. So they saw Elvis, but not really. Presley was also rumoured to have appeared... Now, you're going to go home and watch this film again. He was rumoured to have appeared in the background of an airport scene in the 1990 film Home Alone. I bet you go home and watch that on Netflix this afternoon. So the scene you're looking for is in the airport when the mum is talking to the person over the desk and there's a bearded man in the background who 
is rumoured to be Elvis. Unfortunately, well, fortunately, you <laughs> should say fortunately, it wasn't Elvis. They tracked him down. He was an extra in the film who Chris Columbus, the director, knew. But go home and have a look. Uh, you make up your own mind. But it ain't Elvis. The point behind this question is, with Elvis sightings, the point behind asking, have you seen Elvis lately, is because, well, let's face it, the people who claim to have seen Elvis, they're a little bit out on the edge, aren't they? They're a little bit strange. Some of them would probably possibly have had a hallucination but here's the thing take this on board you don't ever have a claim of over 500 people all at the same time saying we saw Elvis yeah it was great thank you very much you you don't see that you don't have a group of over 500 people who all gathered together at one time and said there's Elvis we saw him doesn't happen so where am I going with this the point is this hallucinations are not seen by 500-plus people all at the same time. In fact, the idea of hallucination and people who are saying that people were hallucinating about seeing Jesus, it was imaginative, they were imagining it, that doesn't fit psychological principles, known psychological principles. Let me give them to you. Peter and the apostles, can you seriously believe... Because they don't just claim they saw him once. Peter and the apostles and other followers of Jesus claim what? That we saw Jesus many times over 40 days. You don't have, it defies psychological principles, you don't have people saying that they hallucinated for 40 days. Unless they were smoking some funny little cigarettes. And we know that wasn't the apostles. You don't have hallucinations, the the, the, Apostles do not fit the psychological profile of people who have hallucinations. What psychological state were they in following the the death of Jesus? They were living in fear, they had doubt, they were living in despair. Now when you are fearful, when you are doubtful, when you are despairing, are you expecting the best or the worst? You're expecting the worst. People who hallucinate have incredibly imaginative minds of expectation. The the, the disciples do not fit the psychological profile. Let me give you a personal illustration about hallucinating. When I was six or seven, I called out to my mum as I went to sleep on Christmas Eve, Mum! Mum! I can hear the reindeer on the roof! Now, I didn't see them, but my, my mind... The expectation of Christmas. I could hear that Santa's reindeer landing on our roof. You'll be pleased to know I grew out of that last year. With long therapy, I got there. Here's the other thing. Hallucinations are fairly rare. As I mentioned before, Hallucinations come to people who are doing drugs or their body is deprived. Listen to what a couple of scholars have said. Gary Habermas, who has investigated the resurrection, says hallucinations are comparably rare. They're usually caused by drugs. We looked at that. Yet, he says, we're supposed to believe that over a course of many weeks, people from all sorts of backgrounds, all kinds of temperaments in various places, all experience hallucinations. Psychologist Gary Collins said hallucinations are individual occurrences. By their very nature, only one person can see a given hallucination at a time. They certainly aren't something which can be seen by a group of people. So you you cannot put the resurrection appearances down to hallucinations. Now, 
what does Paul ask? What is the question? He says, look, what did our preaching produce? And this is what he says. As we preached the death and resurrection of Jesus, faith was the result. Faith was the result. Look at verse 11. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. This word belief or faith, it's, it's a powerful word. It means to be persuaded by something. It means that you are so convinced of the truth, you've been persuaded by it and you put your trust in it. Best way I can describe it, it, it moves beyond mental assent to actual trust and commitment. Best illustration is the illustration of a chair. You can give me the facts of a chair. You can tell me this is a sturdy chair, it's got four legs, it's got a good back, it's been put together really well. That chair will hold you up. Now, I can believe everything you tell me about that. I can give mental assent to it, but I will not actually demonstrate faith until I sit in that chair. And what I discover, it holds me up. That's where you move from, if you like, mental assent to faith with Jesus. You can believe all the facts of the gospel you like. You can walk out of here this morning and say, well, yeah, you know, I think it's true. But until you take the step, folks, and put your trust in Jesus to say, you know, you died for my sin, you rose again, I am now going to willingly turn my life over to you and entrust my eternal salvation to you. And I put my trust in what you've done. I seek forgiveness of my sin. I repent of my sin. And I'm trusting you that when I die, you will not keep me in the grave, but one day you will raise me and I will be in heaven with you. Until you do that, you haven't believed. You're just giving mental assent. Paul says that was what was producing you. But notice this. You see, this, this is really important. Paul wants them to understand, look, what, did you, what, what was it that brought about your faith? It's the old gospel, the old gospel of the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. It's not this new gospel that says that the dead won't be raised. That, that didn't save you. That didn't bring faith. It's the old gospel. So here's what Paul says. He says, let's talk now about the hope that truth produces because Paul is preaching truth and I believe it's true. I am being so blessed revisiting the resurrection, writing these devotionals. It, it, it wasn't something I was looking for, but God has been just awakening my soul again just to the importance and the centrality of the resurrection to our faith. What is this hope that the truth produces? Look, just very quickly... Do you know that the resurrection gives you victory over failure? One of the people who was mentioned here is Peter. What's the story of Peter? He fails many times in Jesus' ministry. He significantly fails when he denies the Lord three times. But what happens on the morning of the resurrection? I think it's one of the most touching phrases in the scripture. The women are there and the angel is saying, go tell his disciples and, and wait for it. And Peter... Tell Peter. Don't you think that's touching? The Lord is saying through that angel, go and, go and tell my disciples, but tell Peter the good news. I'm resurrected. And we know in time, Peter's life is transformed. He becomes the leader of the apostles. He's the first to take the gospel to the Gentiles. He becomes a significant leader in the church. Transformed by the resurrection. Do you feel like you've blown it this morning? Do you feel like you've done something that you just can't get over? Maybe 
I know I need times when I need to hear the Lord say through his angel or whatever, tell Rob, maybe you need to hear that this morning. You think you've blown it? You need to hear the Lord say, tell whoever that I've been raised. It gives us victory over cynicism. James is mentioned, the brother of Jesus. The scriptures very clearly tell us that James and the rest of the family did not believe Jesus. In fact, they thought he was nuts. The scripture tells us in Mark's gospel they wanted to drag him off to the loony bin. They, they did. They wanted to take him into custody. James did not believe in his brother. And then I think Jesus played the ultimate big brother trick. I think there came that moment when Jesus was resurrected and he went, Hey, James, guess what? Can you imagine? He, he, he's, he's grown up with Jesus. Can, can you imagine? And he didn't believe in him. And he didn't trust in his brother. Thought he was crazy. And all of a sudden, big brother's standing in front of you. Guess what? That is the only way you can explain the transformation of James from cynic to becoming head of the Jerusalem church to being given the nickname Camel Knees because he became such a great man of prayer, spent so much time on his knees, who contributes a book to the New Testament and ultimately dies for his faith being stoned to death. The only thing that explains it, such a transformation from cynic to leader of the church, is the resurrected Jesus. Only thing that will do it. Are you cynical this morning? Don't think you can believe anything? Given up on faith? Take a look at the resurrection. One more, shame. We are given victory over shame. Paul is given victory over shame. He says, I was one untimely born. What he, that, that word literally means uh, I was stillborn or a miscarriage. And what he's saying is I did not come to faith in the usual way that the other apostles did. It was like I was untimely born. I was a persecutor of the church. And even though Paul revels in the gospel, even though he talks about the glorious freedom of the gospel, you can hear the scars left by his shame of persecuting the church. But he overcame it all because Jesus forgave it all. This is the marvellous thing. I love that story by Corrie ten Boom. Are you carrying some shame today? Well, here's what Corrie ten Boom reminds us of from the scripture. This is what Jesus does with our shame. He takes all that sin and he gathers it up together, all of your sin, and he goes and drops it in the deepest part of the ocean and he says, no fishing. He did it for Paul. He's done it for me. He's done it for many of you here this morning. He can do it for all of you. Why? Because Jesus rose from the dead. So let's conclude. You see, I get really concerned when I hear Christians, and I heard it this week, when a Christian will say, well, I don't think the resurrection really matters. It matters. Our faith depends on it. If Jesus was not raised from the dead, our faith is in vain. I have one quote to close with. I want to share this with you because I want to encourage you not to just accept my word for it this morning. I believe the resurrection. I believe it is foundational and integral to our faith. But as one author said, it's disturbing that when it comes to the Christian faith, and he's talking here primarily to Christians, 
but also to cynics. He said, it is disturbing that when, peop- when it comes to the Christian faith, people don't really want or know how to investigate the evidence. First, listen to this, we cannot treat the Bible with kid gloves. We really need to wrestle with the issues because our faith depends on it. And secondly, we need to quit turning Jesus into our buddy. He's the sovereign Lord of the universe and we need to understand that and respond accordingly. Folks, he rose from the dead. That makes him the sovereign Lord of the universe. Don't treat your faith with kid gloves. Don't just believe it because I said it this morning. I'm happy to talk to you. You've got questions? Come and talk. If you're on your way to faith this morning, if you want to know more about knowing Jesus, please come and talk to me. We want to share with you the good news of how you can step into God's kingdom. But if, you, if you're questioning this this morning, if you want to know more answers, get yourself out to the library. I'm sure Brian will show you uh, some good books on the resurrection. Start investigating. Don't just believe it because I said it. You've got to make some convictions and come to some conclusions yourself. Let's pray. Loving Father, I want to thank you this morning that our faith, the Christian faith, is built on the bedrock of not just the death and burial of Jesus, but his resurrection and his mighty defeat and victory over sin and over death, over cynicism, over shame, over failure. Lord Jesus, you are the sovereign Lord, the creator of the universe, and you are worthy and deserve our honour and our respect and our worship. Reveal yourself to us over this Easter period in powerful and mighty ways. We pray in your name. Amen.